Okay, we're going to get started. The, uh, this is uh, breakout panel B, uh, which addresses the question, are we headed towards another financial crisis? The panelists are Professor John Danielson in the middle, Professor Emeritus Charles Goodhart just to my left, and Professor Lars Yonung from the University of Lund uh, at uh, the far left. And I'm going to ask each of them to um, make an intervention of about 10 minutes right at the beginning, and then we'll uh, get uh, hopefully a discussion going among the participants and the, the people from the floor. So, um, John, let me start with you. So the, so the question we panelists were asked is, are we heading towards a new financial crisis? And the answer is yes. Now, even though I am not one to forecast, I am pretty certain a crisis will happen. The question is when and in what form. Now, I can give you some numbers. Our research at the Systemic Risk Center indicates that financial crises happen on average once every 40 years. So based on that, one is not around the corner or probably will not happen in my lifetime. Now, however, this frequency of financial crisis also means we have a fairly large sample to study. And indeed, we do know quite a lot about crisis. And enhancing that understanding of crisis is our key objective in the Systemic Risk Center. Now, one thing we do know is that crises are quite similar to one another on a fundamental level, and they're differing significantly in the details. And now that does leave an important question. If we understand the fundamentals of financial crisis so well, and we've done so for at least a century and a half, why can't we prevent them? Now, there are two key reasons to this as far as I see it. First of all, financial regulations focus on the details and not on the fundamentals, and the details change between crises. Regulators look at what happened in the past and try to prevent the past from happening again. The bankers see it differently. The bankers look at regulations for a manual for where the authorities are not looking and hence where to take risk. Regulations are inherently backward-looking. The regulator, I think, or many of them do suffer from what, we call, what I've called the successful general syndrome. They are fighting the last war. I sometimes think of the authorities as the designers of the Marshall line and the bankers as the generals behind the Blitzkrieg. The second reason why crises are so difficult and hard to prevent is, to borrow an American phrase, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We are now treated to the spectacle of some national leaders proclaiming in public they want to clamp down on risk-taking, and then at the same time directing the finance ministers to do exactly the opposite in the smoke-filled rooms in Basel, where they do design the regulations. Now, it is not possible to have a safe banking system and banks that also lend to SMEs. And when it comes to politics, credit beats safety. This is why, in my view at least, the financial regulations should be more explicit on what can and cannot be effectively regulated and focus more on the fundamentals rather than the details. Now, if you go back to this crisis, we are seeing more activity in the regulation space than at least since the 1930s or even forever. The authorities are now involved in every part of the financial system. 
from risk management to asset allocation, personnel decision, compensation, marketing, resolution, funding and bailout, and aiming to aggregate credit across sectors and cycles. There's a lot of hope vested in this process, an enormous amount of resources. Will the regulators deliver? Will they become our Superman fighting the evils of finance? Now, I am not optimistic for reasons that were well stated by a former professor at LSE, Friedrich Hayek, in 1945, who was then writing about central planning. His argument was that the authorities do not and cannot possess enough information to achieve their objectives. Hence, central planning fails. I think the same logic applies to financial regulations. However, suppose that the regulators are indeed the masters of the complexity of the financial system. Now then, the logical conclusion must be to nationalize the financial system and let the regulators run it all. After all, if one is able to effectively control every aspect of the system, well, one is therefore best placed to run it. If that is not the case, it would be useful to start a discussion on what it is that bankers can do better than regulators and use the conclusion of that debate to determine the boundaries between banking and regulation. I suspect the next crisis will happen because the measures we are now putting in place will ultimately not be effective, undermined both by the narrow scope of the regulations and the lack of uh, political support. What the regulations are more likely to achieve is to drive risk-taking further underground so that next time we will see the same familiar reaction, oops, we forgot to look there. The biggest challenge is, of course, institutions that are too big to fail, and there is no political will to deal with that. In the current uh, regulation-friendly political environment, regulators do enjoy considerable political support. However, just as those who are charged with taking away the pence bowl as the party starts finds that the welcome quickly cools, so can the regulators become seen as holding back economic growth. As the time passes, both the power of the regulators will fade and the ambition of the charges will increase with an inevitable result. The regulators cannot prevent excessive and undesirable risk-taking. For example... Basel III contains thousands of pages of instructions, and national interpretations add significantly to that. So as I said earlier, those seeking to speculate will simply read Basel III as a manual for taking risk. While it may be possible in the current regulation-friendly political environment to dynamically deal with that problem, it is unlikely that political goodwill will last forever. Many of the regulations that are now being put in place target misbehavior in exotic financial instruments, hedge funds, proprietary trading. But the real risk is in old favorites, especially real estate and sovereign debt. There's nothing complex about those, and no fancy modeling is required. However, restricting lending to governments and real estate developers is not popular, and a sustained political will to do so has never been mustered in the past. In addition, the new regulations are in many ways a step backwards. One example, this is something we at the Systemic Risk Center have studied in detail, is the market risk proposals in Basel III. We are now moving away from 99% daily value at risk to 97.5% daily expected shortfall, estimated with overlapping data and adjusted for historical performance. 
Now, the only statistical impact of this change is to increase the inaccuracy of risk forecasting. It's a clear step backwards. It would have been much better if the new regulations followed what Malcolm Knight's predecessor at the BIS said in the year 2000. The received wisdom is that risk increases in recessions and falls and booms. In contrast, it may be more helpful to think of risk as increasing during upswings, as imbalances build up, and materializing in recessions. Financial risk is inevitably calculated by statistical models based on perceived risk. Perceived risk is that deduced from available historical data. Unfortunately, what matters is actual risk. They build up of vulnerabilities out of sight. Unfortunately, actual risk is latent and cannot be easily forecasted. A riskometer does not exist. Consequently, the authorities find it difficult to react to the build-up of risk until it's too late. The other consequence of this is one cannot study historical crises from a statistical point of view in order to look for guidance as to what the next crisis will be. Other research at the center suggests that from a statistical point of view, every crisis is quite different than other crises. There are few or no statistical lessons to be learned by studying the past statistically. Now, this is a, by the way, this is a topic of a conference we will be running on May 6th. The perverse outcome of the new regulations is that regardless of whether the authorities are successful or not, their policies are likely to lead to a crisis. If they are not successful in reducing risk, you will see excessive risk-taking and a crisis. If they are successful and risk-taking is reduced to an acceptable level, you will also get a crisis. The reason is, as noted by Hyman Minsky, stability is destabilizing. To the extent that the authorities can achieve a stable system, they encourage market participants to take on more risk, which given time will lead to a crisis. The next crisis will happen. There's a, mis- there's a mischance in the current regulatory design environment to implement policies that will mitigate the incidence and severity of crisis. The focus should be on the system, not on the institution. The focus should be on easily verifiable and likely to succeed rules, not on trying to match the complexity of the financial system. Thanks very much, John. Uh, next, I go to Charles. Charles, you have the floor. <laughs> um, having worked in a central bank for quite a lot of my life, I, I feel some need to take a different position. I don't think that it's actually uh, the regulators and the authorities who, by their stupidity, uh, create crises. We're quite capable of creating crises on our own. Um, And I don't think there was any regulation on tulips that led to the tulip mania in Holland, nor do I think that there was any regulation that led to the South Sea bubble. Um, I don't think... I, I, I agree that the regulators are always fighting the last war and that regulation is almost always a response to what happened before, and that regulators don't get it right. But I don't think that they're necessarily the prime cause of crises. I think the prime cause of crises uh, is a conventional wisdom that certain kinds of classes of asset are a great deal safer than they actually turn out to be, and that this conventional wisdom is generally shared uh, by the market, Uh, and by the regulators jointly. Uh, 
and I think that one of the main reasons for the crisis we had in 2007-2008 was that all those involved in the markets and among the regulators thought that residential investment in residential property uh, was a great deal safer than in fact it turned out to be. Um, And I don't think, uh, I, I admit happily that um, I think that the risk weighting uh, of bank lending for mortgages uh, was underweighted and underweighted for political purposes. But I don't think that that was the cause of uh, the reason why uh, Dick Ford invested very heavily in MBS or UBS invested very heavily in the, the uh, AAA tranches uh, of CDS is based on mortgage properties. I think it was because uh, they all thought that housing was a great deal safer than it, it turned out to be. And that it's the conventional wisdom that turns out to be mistaken uh, that is, and that the conventional wisdom that would be shared by the regulators uh, as well as by the uh, financials. Now, let me turn as a re- of the following to two areas where I don't expect a crisis. The first area is housing in the UK. Uh, The conventional wisdom now knows that housing prices can go down very sharply as well as up, and I think that for the foreseeable short-term future, I don't expect there to be a significant, as a result, an excessive bubble in housing prices. I don't think that will be a danger for the UK. Nor do I expect there to be a crisis, a financial crisis, in China. Uh, China's in a rather unusual position. It doesn't need to worry about moral hazard. The reason it doesn't need to worry about moral hazard is that it's an authoritarian, one-party state. And you know perfectly well that if you foul up, you do not get to enjoy your bonuses uh, in some sort of um, a nice suburban villa. Instead, you get relocated to a labor camp, and that's probably the nicest thing that you can happen to you. So that there are plenty of reasons why in China uh, the financial leaders are not prepared to take the kind of risks that uh, some of those in the West were incentivized to do. Moreover, since they don't have to worry that much about moral hazard, uh, the Chinese can, with the power of the state behind them, uh, intervene to stop contagion and pro-cyclicality as and when they want to do so. And I think that they will achieve that. I think that the degree uh, of actual failures in China will depend very much on what the Chinese want them to be, and their process will not get out of hand. That doesn't mean necessarily... Uh, that the developments in China won't have an effect more widely. Because I do think that the shift in the Chinese business model, which at the moment is extremely unbalanced, uh, will lead and indeed has to lead to a very considerable decline in the underlying Chinese rate of growth, which will be reinforced once demography and the decline in the working population kicks in. That, to my mind, means that there's quite a likelihood that commodity prices uh, over the board are likely to be depressed over the next few years. If at some stage during this period uh, interest rates are rising relatively sharply in the developed economy, you can see the emerging market economies based on commodities faced with the scissors on one hand 
between the export prices for their commodities going down and the interest rates they have to pay on their borrowing going up. An extreme version of this in 1981 led to the Mexican, Argentinian, Brazilian, LATAM crisis, and one could see a similar scenario uh, happening in future. Uh, a similar kind of potential danger uh, arises because the Eurozone periphery issue has not been settled. Uh, the debt ratios remain very high, and the debt dynamics continue to be work, continue to be uh, adverse. Um, and you only need to have an increase in interest rates, which most people think is coming down the road, combined with uh, political accidents, and they are increasingly likely to occur, to lead to a recurrence of the kind of uh, Eurozone crisis that was dealt with magnificently by Draghi and the ECB in, in 2012. And if that should occur again, I'm particularly given a political element to it, or a greater political element to it, uh, it's not at all clear uh, what may happen. So I think that one, the, if you like, the Eurozone issue has been was neutralized in 2012, it's not, to my mind, disappeared. It is still a, a possibility. Now, I'm not quite sure where um, uh, John's 40-year gaps between crises has come from, uh, because I, in my uh, unfortunately rather too extended uh, life as a watcher of the UK economy, I reckon to have lived through three financial crises in the UK, and I'm not 120 years old quite yet. <laughs> ne <laughs> nearly, but not quite. Um, the three crises are 1973 uh, with a very rapid rise in commercial property prices combined with a pretty rapid rise in residential housing prices, uh, credit a massive credit extension by the banks, with the banks behaving particularly competitively. Um, it's unclear to me as concerned with financial stability why the authorities keep on asking for a more competitive banking system. It's uh, when the banking system gets competitive um, and everyone sort of lowers the margins um, and tries to offer loans at a more attractive rate uh, in order to build up business. They really need to start worrying. Uh, the, bank, the banking systems that do best and the most stable are those that are comfortably oligopolistic with a sufficient profit margin at home so they don't have to go out and do these silly things in terms of expansion abroad uh, or sort of um, pushing loans too hard and too rapidly. Um, but, uh, again, um, uh, these in each case have had a 17-year gap between them, 74 to 91, 91 to 2008. 
So I am confidently, and there's a reason for it, 17 years is about time for those who remembered the previous one uh, to have um, uh, gone to old people's homes and people who don't remember it to have taken up positions of seniority. So I am confidently expecting, um, and mark it down in your diaries, that the next financial crisis in the UK, which will again be associated with commercial property lending for housing uh, among a competitive banking system will take place in 2025. So be, be, be prepared and put 2025 into your diaries. Um, sell in 2024 and hold cash in 2024. That, that's my investment prepared for my suggestion for you. So. Thanks, Charles, for your investment advice. Um, <clears throat> One interesting point, in North America we have something called the 17-year cicada. It only comes back once every 17 years. And it's very, very interesting question in biology, why it's 17 years? And one of the answers is that 17 is a prime number. And if you think about that, you'll realize why that's probably a good explanation. But let me now go to Lars Jona. Lars? Thank you. After this introduction uh, by Charles and John, uh, what can I do differently? Well, I can speak PowerPointish. And I'll do that uh, to uh, give my answer to the question Are we heading towards a new financial crisis? I come from Knut Excel Center for Financial Studies, Lund University, and you will see, 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 see why. Are we heading towards a new financial crisis? My answer is yes. And I would like to add, of course. Why? Well, since the fall of the Bretton Woods system, the last part of the gold standard, the frequency of financial crisis has increased worldwide. And nothing fundamentally has changed after the Great Recession, that is, the most recent global financial crisis. The lesson of financial crisis has not been learned. What we should thus expect future crisis in breweries. So that's my answer. Allow me nine minutes to uh, explain what I why I reach these conclusions. We need a framework to understand the coming crisis. Let's look upon the economist who provides us with a relevant theory of the present financial system. And he is, of course, Knut Excel. Uh, the first uh, keynote speech today was all about Knut. But uh, there was no picture, so I'll show you a picture of him. <laughs> he was professor at Lund University between 1901 and 1916, and he presented first the theory of the pure credit economy. And based on the theory of the pure credit economy, he also uh, constructed a norm, a recommendation for central banking. His idea was that the, the central bank should set the bank rate equal to the real rate in order to maintain price stability. And price stability or monetary stability could be obtained by this central bank policy. And this norm is called Knutvik-Sell's norm for price stability and it was adopted in Sweden in September 1931 when Sweden was forced to leave the gold standard one week after Bank of England took the same decision. And so far, the Bank of Sweden is the only bank in the world that has accepted price-level targeting. Today, we see central banking 
modern central banking is based on a version of Knudsvik's sales rule called inflation targeting. The ECB, the Federal Reserve, and other, I would say, modern central banks follow the Excelian rules where they try to set the policy rate equal to the real rate or close. The financial system has moved to the pure credit system where the reserve capital base is declining. This is exactly the kind of model or the vision that Excel had. He believed that you could have a commercial banking system based on basically one silver coin. And where the velocity of this silver coin was indefinite. And I would say we have moved towards this type of system, where the reserve capital base or the monetary base is declining compared to the volume of credit in uh, the system. Let me illustrate what has happened uh, in the past, say, 50, 60 years. Here we have the financial system in the United States as a share of GDP. It has expanded, and we don't see any breaks on the rate of expansion. Here we have another illustration of the financialization of the U.S. economy. Uh, fi fi finance, or fire, I would say, insurance, real estate, and rental and leasing have increased as a share of GDP compared to, say, manufacturing. And this is not only an American pattern. You see it across uh, OECD. These are simple averages for 18 OECD economies where debt, government debt, private sector debt, household debt, and corporate debt has increased uh, I would say significantly. Uh, what has this contributed to growth? Well, uh, the work by Ross Levine and others were mentioned this morning, and the idea has been that with more finance, you get more growth. Well, has it worked? If you look upon these two uh, lines, the blue one is the growth of total market credit, and the red one is gross domestic product. You see a quite a difference. And the question you can raise is, uh, has the marginal productivity of debt been uh, beneficial to society? I don't have the answer. I think the, the, the picture gives you at least some reason for thought. And in the past 30 years, we have had a number of bubbles, or I would call financial crises, and every financial crisis has been followed so far by the growth of debt. And this is a total... U.S. market debt, credit debt, uh, outstanding relative to GDP, and you have all the crises uh, uh, marked in the chart. And one way to look upon this is to look upon the behavior of central banks. Central banks have had a tendency to reduce the policy rate in the face of financial crisis in order to improve the balance sheet position of the private sector. And in this way, uh, we have had a secular growth rate of total credit to GDP, and we have a secular falling policy rate. And the question you may ask is the following one. What will happen when the next big crisis hits us? Of course, it's just to run a regression, and you know that you can borrow with a central bank at minus 5% during the next crisis. It would be a challenge, but at least that's in the chart. So, what can we... Let's, let's go back to Kultvixel. Uh, let us discuss Kultvixel of today. I would argue 
that uh, Vixel today would say the financial system is inherently unstable. And it's getting more and more unstable through ongoing financial innovations. And inflation targeting, the recipe, the monetary norm of Vixel is contributing to financial instability. I'm sorry, uh, the prefix is apparent when I prepare this. So, and I started to look at Ludwig Sell's work. What did he say about financial stability and monetary stability? And so far, I have only found, unfortunately in Swedish, a quote where he discusses this issue. And he discussed it during World War I, when uh, Sweden had a huge uh, bubble in uh, shares. He said, there could be a conflict between financial stability and monetary stability. But luckily, as a rule, there is none. And that is not much guidance for today. Because today we have a clear trade-off between monetary stability, that is consumer price stability, and financial stability, as we measure financial stability through asset price behavior. So, Excel was focusing on the cost of living, the consumer price index. He didn't, I, I don't, I'm not sure why he, didn't, why he didn't look upon asset prices, but I think he lived in the gold standard world, and asset prices, they were fairly stable in that world. And the size of the financial sector was smaller, much smaller, I believe, in those days than today. So he, didn't, he ignored it, and he believed you could get stability by hitting the real rate. Cont Let me continue on to Excel today. Where will the next crisis emerge? As you see in the program, uh, those who set up this conference, they wanted they want to know not only when, as Charles said, so last, when the next crisis will occur, but also where. And my answer is, in countries which have not recently had a financial crisis, we can divide the world in those, who just, those countries that just have had a crisis and those who have not yet had a crisis. They, the latter group will have it. And where do you find them? Well, you find them close to home, I would say. This is a chart of real house prices in Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, the United States, and the OECD. And you can see, clearly see how some countries have had a crisis, like uh, Denmark, the United States, and the OECD. The black uh, line here, okay, that one is OECD. The United States, you can see here from the mid 1990s. 90s till 2007, you had a, a, a boom in U.S. Uh, real estate prices, and then you had a, a, sh a sharp correction or decline. There are two countries, and then Denmark, which avoided the crisis of the early 1990s, they have had this type of behavior, a very sharp settlement, which surprised the Danes, of course, uh, and uh, many other observers, because uh, they have been very prudent in their policies. There are two countries which stand out as not having the crisis yet, and of course the red line is Sweden, and you can see here how we continuous, continually over time has increased our prices. Uh, and the head of the central bank in Sweden, the Bank of Sweden, is Stefan Ingves, who is presently the head of the Basel III committee. Uh, I'm not sure quite how you should look upon position now, uh, but Ingves is very concerned about this behavior. As another group of economists in Sweden say, don't bother about financial stability. That's something that someone else will take care of, not the central bank. And, of course, 
Sweden and Norway always compete, so here you have Norway, and uh, there are good reasons to say, well, fundamentals explains why it's, the prices are so high. You can buy a small shack on the top of a Norwegian mountain where it can only be basically for two months a year at uh, uh, a price twice as much as you can buy an estate or vineyard in, in France. So there's something with, with, a, with, a, with a pricing now that makes me suspicious about where can you see or where will you have the next financial crisis. So, how can the system be made more stable according to Excel? Well, basically, I would say restrict the growth in credit relative to income. That would be his conclusion. And we have some cases where you can reach this. The Bretton Woods period, going back to Sweden, during the 50s and 60s, we had no financial crisis, basically. The Swedish Bank set the target of 4% growth in the total economy on a yearly basis. And that meant that there was no bubbles. Another way to do it is to have unlimited liability commercial banking. And that was an idea that was mentioned earlier about uh, partnership instead of uh, limited liability. And of course, we have this problem. Where do we find the real rate today? And uh, we are not quite sure, which makes it a bit difficult to use the Excelian scheme today. Mr. Chairman, I'm finishing very quickly. I'm finishing with an optimistic forecast. Basel 1, 2, and 3 will be followed soon by Basel 4. I have told Stephen English this. He had no objection. And after the next financial crisis, we may find a more stable credit system. That's very optimistic. We need a new financial crisis to learn this lesson. And you may have heard the, what the chief of staff at the White House said, don't waste the financial crisis. Well, I think we are wasting the present financial crisis. But I would like to say, don't waste the next financial crisis. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lars. Well, um, John Danielson, who's the organizer of this conference has asked me to say a, a few words. I wouldn't normally do that as chairman. But um, uh, it's, it's fine to predict that, a, that a, another crisis will come. But we're in the middle of a huge fundamental transformation in the architecture of global regulation. And so it's a legitimate question to ask why, if we're having such a major, um, uh, some hopefully globally harmonized reform, we're still going to get another crisis. And I've been scratching my head and studying this for some time, and I think there are probably a dozen reasons why it's likely that we will have another crisis, even with these reforms. So I would like to say just a little bit about where I think the regulatory reform process is not leading us to a new regulatory framework that will prevent a crisis. I think it will increase the robustness of individual institutions to a certain extent, but it's not going to be enough to prevent a future crisis. And let me give you several reasons for that. First of all, 
Uh, as, a num- as several of uh, my colleagues here have suggested, the regulatory reform that's going on currently relies far too much on strengthening microprudential regulation and not enough on macroprudential regulation. Macroprudential regulation is still essentially an empty shell. I'll talk about that a little more in a moment. Secondly, if um, Adair Turner is right in the arguments he made this morning, the microprudential regulations that are being um, promulgated and implemented are in some cases not in the right direction. And in particular, he pointed out the importance of uh, a regulatory structure which would strengthen credit underwriting and the capacity to service debt. And that actually has a pretty significant Im- implication because lending on uh, in, in the real estate area where many people would agree bank lending has been concentrated is lending on the basis of collateral, which has nothing to do directly with ability to repay debt. And so it's arguable that in looking at better underwriting standards and better debt servicing standards, the regulators need to be looking at the quality of um, free cash flow firms and other transactors and their ability to service debt going forward. So I think that's one element where the, uh, the emphasis is not quite right. A second point I would make is that the regulatory reforms so far don't really do that much to reduce interconnectedness. We don't have the investment banks anymore. We're about to do something about the money market mutual funds. But still we have very long chains of um, um, interconnected asset holdings uh, among the institutions in the financial sector with very small spreads between the borrowing rates and the, um, the uh, lending rates. And those sorts of interconnections are what create the contagion across the financial system uh, when uh, when there are stresses. So even if the microprudential conditions were right, these interconnections can still cause contagion and stress. But another point I would make, I think, is, is less recognized and is, to me, more obvious, and that is that There's excessive homogeneity in the new regulatory rules across different types of transactors. I think that all of these uh, highly calibrated rules about the exact capital charge for a certain type of risk-weighted assets are actually not bad for the banking system. Why? Because the banks are highly leveraged institutions. That's how you make a high return on equity as a bank. But there are other uh, other transactors in the system that are not highly leveraged. Insurance companies, reinsurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, portions of the household sector, pension funds. These are real money investors. If we start to apply the same rules of capital holding against assets for those institutions that we want to apply for highly 
leveraged institutions, uh, what will happen? It will mean that these real money investors that have a very long-term horizon and that should be buying assets that, whose prices have fallen in a fire sale relative to a reasonable um, estimate of their discounted future cash flow will not be able to do it. What does that mean? Well, it means that everybody, the leveraged investors and the unleveraged investors, will be required by the regulatory system to be on the same side of the market at the same time when there's stress. If everybody's on the same side of a market when there's stress, there isn't any market. And so I think that, you know, uh, trying to use the same rules across different types of transactors is uh, something that could cause some very significant problems. There's one final point I'd like to make, though, and that is also about harmonization. To me, it's absolutely crucial that at least the key elements of regulatory reform are harmonized pretty fully across jurisdictions. So I don't think they should be harmonized across different types of transactors, particularly between leveraged and unleveraged ones. But they should be harmonized internationally. Why is that? Well, if they're not harmonized internationally, it creates an incentive for regulatory arbitrage. It creates an unlevel competitive uh, playing field. It gives everybody an incentive to try to push risks out into those parts of the financial system that are inevitably not going to be closely uh, regulated. And so international harmonization of um, the main regulatory rules, which was what Basel I initially gave us and was very successful in increasing the solvency of the banking system in the uh, early 1990s, at some macroeconomic cost, by the way. Uh, that is, to me, very, very important. One last point. Everybody today, almost everybody who's spoken has said that the regulators are always behind the scenes. John said that regulation was um, was uh, was uh, was designed in the smoke-filled rooms of Basel. John, I take great umbrage at that, because when I was running the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, I banned smoking within the <laughs> building, except, and Charles will appreciate this, except at times uh, when the governors of the central banks were there. And that was in deference to Eddie George, because Eddie George just refused not to smoke. <laughs> But uh, let me come back to macroprudential uh, regulation. It's absolutely crucial to this process. There has to be an, uh, an institution in each jurisdiction that is responsible for identifying emerging vulnerabilities, for requiring institutions to build up um, capital and solvency, uh, so, sorry, solvency and liquidity and other buffers in times when the whole system is expanding because of the annual animal spirits so that they can be run down to relieve the stresses in the system and the asset fire sales when the system comes under stress. 
So there are three crucial elements of macroprudential regulation which must be in this highly interconnected system which are not there yet. One is to more closely monitor the interconnections among core firms. When the crisis uh, intensified in 2008 and the primary reserve fund broke the buck, nobody was aware of what huge lenders the $3.7 trillion money market funds were to the banks in the United States and the banks in Europe. And that shouldn't happen again. Secondly, they have to be able to identify system-wide risk concentrations, uh, crowded trades, where no individual transactor is big enough, but together there's a herd instinct and uh, they, they, they have a crowded trade. Big data allows us to do this. But the interesting thing is that the regulators need not only to be able to identify this for their own purposes, they also need to decide what aggregate data on risk concentration needs to be transmitted publicly to the marketplace so that it can be properly priced. In the last crisis, neither the regulators nor the uh, uh, private sector, the marketplace, knew what the system-wide risk concentrations were, so the private sector couldn't price them. If it couldn't price them, it couldn't control them. So the third pillar of Basel, uh, Basel II, Basel III, and I guess we're going to, we actually, we already do have Basel IV was not there. And the final element of macroprudential regulation, which I don't think anybody mentions, but which is the most important at all, uh, of all, is monitoring innovation. Innovation is very cheap in the financial sector. How do you do that? Since the crisis, all the large banks have been required to have a new product approval process. The new product approval process says that if you've convinced me to structure some transaction for you and it turns out to be a good one, and then I try to sell it to somebody else for whom it's not really suited, uh, we at least have a process that tells us how that's going to work, whether it's legal, how it should be compensated to the trader, etc. And the authorities need to monitor the new product appraisal uh, approval process. Not necessarily to regulate it, but to see what instruments are out there and then measure what the risk concentrations are and how they're changing. So I think these are, are, are issues which are raised by what is indeed an ambitious and comprehensive program of regulatory reform, but one which is only a necessary con uh, condition and certainly not a sufficient condition to prevent the next crisis. Now with that, let me turn to the, um, to the, uh, to the uh, panelists here for further thoughts. Um, who wants to go first? John. Just a couple of... Charles did ask me a question on where I got my number 40 years. And of course, he's trying to look at the biased sample. The UK is unusually crisis prone. Now, and if you, of course, I mean, the, the, if, you go, if you look at the international distribution of crisis, one country has a crisis once every one and a half years. And has had that every, at least for the past 150 years. Some countries, like, like the country that's uh, Malcolm, was quite influential in running 
Well, is, it has, 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 has much, much lower incidence of financial crisis on average. My number 40 came from looking at two databases, the, the IMF World Bank Financial Crisis Database, specifically applied to OECD countries. So that gives you 42 years, almost exactly. Another number which gives you more of the same number is to look at the, this, this time is different book by, by Ronald de Rogoff, we also get a similar number. So this, of course, is, is unconditional. So, Charles, is the UK unusually crisis prone? It's only because I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm, I, we have a very much larger financial system. Uh, where our financial system is much more competitive, we're much more open, and for the last 60 years or so, we have put much more emphasis in our economies on housing than most other economies. And we're more interesting, too. <laughs> Lars, did you want to come in? Yes, I think that's one perspective that... Uh, we didn't mention in our introductions now, and that has to deal with the political economy of the financial sector. That is basically Wall Street versus Main Street. And if you look upon the response, the political response, the regulatory response in the 1930s, and compare that with the response today, there's a very large difference. There was a much tougher regulation put in place after the 1930s, the Great Depression. And it's probably because the financial system has, was viewed as the culprit, the cause of the crisis. And the political tra uh, uh, process transformed this into legislation. Today, I don't see the same uh, reaction towards the financial system. And I think that the financial system has actually expanded and become politically so strong that you can't regulate it in law. I mean, look upon the, the UK. If you... Just think what Charles said. He said, we are so advanced, we are so open, we are so big in the financial system. So that's why we should have crisis every second year or something like that for the next conference. And look upon a country like Germany, which hasn't got the same kind of, of uh, size of the financial system or size, same institution. They don't, they don't have a crisis to the same extent. So in order to understand the power of the financial sector, just look upon the program here. It says... Kindly supported by Mitsuhu, that's a bank, of course. And did you expect a banking finance conference to reach any firm conclusions anti-banking? Of course not. And the same thing, we have a systemic risk center. I mean, a systemic risk center you know, has, of course, to live on the fair of crisis and how to, to manipulate it so you can uh, still survive. I mean, the worst thing that would happen to you would be complete financial stability, you would have no resources, no graduate students. And look upon the organizer of this conference, it's London School of Economics, in the middle of the city. You see there is a, say, a corruption, I, I would say corruption, I think there's a, there's a nice understanding. We should be careful here, don't uh, throw out the baby with the water. Uh, I just put this as a perspective for you to consider before you go home. Most of you come from the financial sector, I gather, and most of you have nice income, nice pensions. We all live on the financial system. John, so, can you... Oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I, 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 I see... Can, I, 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 can I, you bite the hand that feeds you, John? I, I, see, the thing is, I am, of course, 
I am slightly worried. Of course, first on, first on statistics, the German banking system is almost the same size as the British one. If you look at the ECB statistics, there is not a huge difference. It's, from memory, it is 3.7 times GDP in Germany and 4.3 in the UK. So the, there is some, and if you look at the Europe-wide statistics on banking system, the UK is roughly average. And the richest country in Europe has the biggest banking system, Luxembourg. So, and of course, there's a question for Charles, maybe. Suppose the UK had not had the financial system, would it have been richer or poorer for it? But I'm, I'm, I'm going to respond to Lars before. Lars, by the way, started by saying all Swedish economists are called Lars, and then he started talking about Nut. This is slightly, slightly worrying. However, There's a time lag here. However, he did let out the big secret. Academia is counter-cyclical. However, this conference is not supported by Mitsubishi. This conference is supported by Economic and Social Science Research Council of the Great Britain, which represents the British taxpayer. And it is the British taxpayer, therefore, that saw systemic risk as important in decided to fund this conference. It's not a banking conference. That's Good fair. point. Charles. Charles, do you want to respond? I can never test a counterfactual. I now happen to think that the UK... Uh, which, after the end of its coal and iron, really had to live off its wits. We, I mean, apart from sort of ten years of North Sea oil. And I think our wits are sort of best at the kind of uh, service exercise in which um, and finance plays a very large role. Uh, I don't think we could have had anything like the standard of living we've got now uh, without finance. Uh, but um, I want to turn uh, to something that worried me about what Malcolm was saying, because he talked about the importance of macro proof, and he said it was crucial. But earlier on in his, in his excellent sort of comments, he described macro proof as an empty book. Empty shell. Empty shell. Okay. <laughs> so we've got something that is crucial but we haven't actually got it working yet. We don't know whether it will work. And so this is, is a worry. And, and, it is, I, and I still think of myself as sort of one of the central bank fraternity. And the central bank fraternity is going to stick to using its interest rate to stabilize the, or achieve the inflation target. So if we're also going to be able to achieve financial stability... We've got to have some other kind of instruments, which go under the generic name of macroprudential. But we don't, we haven't tried them, or the central bank fraternity hasn't tried them. It doesn't know whether they will work, and it's really remains totally uncertain. Now, another thing that Malcolm also said was the importance of of data. Now, one of the failings of the financial sector. Uh, and of the authorities within the financial sector, is that the products and transactions are not standardized. Now, if you now go to a, a supermarket and you buy a whole series of things, and you have your checkout, you can now check out without having to go through somebody who checks them for you, but check out for yourself, because there's this little barcode. There is no equivalent in the financial system. We don't have a standardized mechanism. And without a standardized mechanism for dealing with standardizing 
uh, financial products. You cannot actually aggregate because people do things in different ways. And uh, again, there was a, 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 an article which I would recommend to you today in the FT by Gillian Tett, which effectively said that one of the problems is we have a global financial system. A great deal of these transactions are cross-border. And yet, for a whole variety of reasons, there's a great deal of distrust uh, about simply handing over data from one country to the regulators in another country. But without doing it, while we have a global financial system, we cannot, cannot, get the kind of estimates about interconnections that you were asking about, or concentrations. Because in a globalized financial system, you have to have potentially globalized data that can be aggregated and looked at effectively on a cross-border globalized basis. And we are, we are a long way from getting standardization of financial products. We are light years from getting uh, the ability to uh, transfer data generated in one country um, to other countries so that this can be done on a global basis. Um, we need, we need, and the Americans have introduced something called the Office of Financial Research, which I think it was a great step forward, though it's very new and it's got a long way to go. Uh, I think that there is an equivalent need for a European Office of Financial Research, and indeed for an Asian Office of Financial Research, uh, which would do the same within the, those regions, and that the three groups of financial research offices ought to talk together. And we, but we're a very, very long way from being able to do the kind of background underlying plumbing with the data that you say, Malcolm, correctly, is actually essential. We're going to be able, or the regulators, or anyone, going to be able to undertake to analyze how the system is working. Well, this definitely proves that we've done less in regulation of the financial system than we have in the regulation of the cash registers and supermarkets, because 90-day treasury bills and 180-day treasury bills are much more similar to each other than apples and oranges, but we seem to be better at measuring uh, the costs of apples and oranges than uh, these different financial transactions. I, I, I totally I, I do agree with what you're saying. would make one political economy point, though, and then we'll go to the audience. I do think that particularly in the United States, the advent of a macro prudential regulator in the form of the Financial Stability Oversight Council is um, a step forward from a political economy point of view. And the reason is that in the previous, um, in the run-up and uh, dynamics of the previous crisis, the, the seven or so regulators that are all involved with the core financial institutions plus the state ones, by the way, we'll get into that, all essentially pointed the finger at each other. Putting uh, everybody together in the Financial Stability Oversight Council puts on that body the responsibility to 
recognize vulnerabilities and do something about them. Now, it may not succeed in that task, but at least we now have a clearly visible body that has that mandate. So that's something of a step forward from a broader point of view. But let's open uh, this up to everyone in the room, not just to ask questions, but to make comments. Yes. Uh, my question thank you. My question is about regulatory arbitrage. Uh, regulatory arbitrage, I... Uh, Could you I, say your name and... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Dr. Atul Shah, uh, University of Suffolk. Regulatory arbitrage has been central to global banking for decades and uh, has been a very important source of profit. Uh, why is it that after every crisis we kind of ignore that and we still believe in regulation, perhaps because we want to believe it, but uh, you know that really we need to address the whole issue of regulatory arbitrage, and harmonization is definitely not the answer. Thank you. Uh, let me take one more question, and then we'll uh, try to answer that. Frank Tchaikovsky, uh, KFW. Uh, I have a question to the to the whole panel, whoever wants to answer. And that's we had in an earlier presentation today um, an argument that we need to move more to central counterparties um, as a method for stability of the uh, financial system. Now, I must confess, I'm a little bit frightened about this prospect to put so much power into single institutions. I just wonder. Um, and it seems to be a very important part of the regulation going forward. I just wonder how you feel about this development. I think we, we can't do much more than feel at this point in time because the experience is somewhat limited. Let's take one more question back here, right in the back row, and then we'll uh, get the responses from the panelists. Hi there, Keith Patton from FNC. Um, regarding the, the title of the new financial, financial crisis, aren't we, isn't it the actual existence of central banks which are stoking up the next financial crisis by every time responding to a financial crisis with new methods of subsidising banks? QE is a subsidy to banks, creating moral hazard by creating artificially low interest rates. Thank you. Who would like to start the... Let's uh, take thoughts. First of all, on harmonization, anyone want to, and, and regulatory arbitrage? Listen, uh, if I can answer a slightly different question. <laughs> but, 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 but there's a reason for this, because, because your question, and something Malcolm mentioned, and other people, is, is, is relevant. So I'm, I'm going to combine two things I've heard here. Question of harmonization, which is, if you look at, for example, the, the European Banking Authority and the Basel Committee about a year ago, both of them had a press release that said roughly the following. If we had the same portfolio, which is risk evaluated by different banks, we will get different risk weights out, and we are concerned by that. I mean, the EBA went further in the press release than the, than the Basel Committee did, but both of them expressed concerns. And the question is, should banks evaluate risks on the same portfolio in the same way. Now that of course is I think on the surface is quite an appealing thing. And, and that will prevent your regulatory arbitrage, or at least go somewhere to prevent the regulatory arbitrage. However, if we, every bank eva sees risk in the same way, you will harmonize the behavior of bank. When a shock hits, you will all react to the shock in the same way, and therefore the shock will be amplified. You want 
HSBC to see this as positive and Barclays to see it as negative. So on aggregate, they balance out. Um, the financial system is made more stable by being banks being as heterogeneous as possible, and that means the models being used for evaluating risks as being as heterogeneous as possible. That will cause regulatory arbitrage, but I think that heterogeneity is quite important. So, and I, it's a slightly different question, but it relates to what people said. Other, other comments? I think the comment over here. Uh, about the role of central banks in financial crisis is a very important one. Uh, we have to understand that central banks, they are, uh, they can regulate the volume of credit, and they regulate it in a way that creates financial crisis. I went through the Swedish financial crisis from the start of the Riksbank, and it turned out that the first financial crisis was actually the year after the uh, foundation of the Riksbank. And we go over the centuries, Many of the crises, excluding those who came from abroad, have been, has been created through uh, domestic prosecutality. So we have to find a way of controlling central banks. And I don't have the answer how to control it, but I think your point here is well taken. Instead of hunting the behavior of uh, certain institutions, we should look upon it from a macroeconomic perspective, and that gives the central bank the main role of stabilizing the system. I entirely disagree. Um, what happens, the way this, the world works, is that people say, moral hazard, we've got to try and ensure that it doesn't happen again. So they effectively introduce a regulation which says that we're going to tie the hands of the authorities. The 1844 Bank Act in the UK was a typical example. The Dodd-Frank Act is another I think that the SRM, as it is coming through, is going to be yet another. We're not going to allow these dreadful central bankers to do anything about it. And then the crisis hits. Somebody goes down. The central bank can't do anything about it because its hands are tied. So you start getting contagion. And then, effectively, people turn around and they said, we've got to actually change the act. And the Bank of England Bank Act of 1844, every time a crisis was hit in the second half of the 19th century, the Bank Act had to be temporarily suspended. And that usually actually did the trick. Um, and the same way, I don't think Dodd-Frank, uh, the idea that Dodd-Frank will be able to uh, enable the, a big American bank to be liquidated without a major contagion, I think is just, it's extremely hopeful. And I don't think the SRM, for exactly the same reason, is going to work. And if you try to allow these things to work out, you would have a contagious financial crisis which would turn everybody's hair whiter than mine. And frankly, no government can actually afford to sit by and allow its financial system and its economy totally to collapse. So what we do is we go on, we're effectively, we, we go round this circle again and again. We mustn't allow the central banks to be too easy to give them, to give them, bail them out and support them. So we've got to tie the central bank's hands. And then when a crisis occurs, we untie the central bank's hands rather too late. And we have a nastier crisis than we should have. We've got to do it another way. One of the ways that the bankers were kept from being too pro-cyclical and even that didn't work all that well, was they had unlimited liability. I want to move back in that direction. 
I want to. I don't want to abolish central banks. I don't want to tie their hands. I don't want to say that we've got to allow everything to be liquidated. I want to move to a situation in which the penalty on those taking the decisions in the banks, uh, the penalties of failure and of bad decisions, uh, let alone of bad behaviour, are much, much greater than they are at the present. I don't think it's a central bank's fault. I don't think tying central banks' hands is sensible or right. I think the incentive structure on bankers is wrong. Now, a final comment on CCPs. CCPs would be a good idea if they were sufficiently C, by which I mean central. There's a very, very good article by Darrell Duffy that says the problem with central CCPs is that everybody is going to want a CCP in their own country. So you're not just going to have one CCP for, say, swaps. You're going to have a CCP in America, you're going to have a CCP in London, have a CCP in Frankfurt, you'll have a CCP in in Tokyo, you'll have a CCP in Japan. And at the moment, uh, the way that without a CCP that these derivative derivative trades are settled is that essentially it's, it's pretty much a small system with about seven or eight major interconnected banks doing the greater bulk of it. And they settle it bilaterally with themselves. If you have a world in which there is not just one CCP for swaps, but say eight, because everybody wants their own CCP for swaps, then the imbalances um, and the problems of uh, not being able to, to net out become actually much greater. And and CCPs which are not sufficiently centralized, but there's one everywhere and one for every kind of derivative, actually could make the situation worse. See, if it was really centralization, then it would be a jolly good idea. I admit it's so crucial that you have to protect it, but I know there's one. Sure, you protect the hell out of it, but the problem is there are going to be too many of them, and that could cause... Uh, distortions and imbalances much greater than the present. I, I, I agree with uh, Charles' point, and I think that um, actually uh, central counterparties are uh, uh, an example of where there is a form of natural monopoly, and there is an argument for uh, these being mutual structures, because the, the real situation where it's important to have a central counterparty is if one of the institutions that's a big um, that, that that has big exposures to other institutions through the central counterparty fails, and then it's it will be necessary for the central counterparty to replace the trades of that, uh, of, of that failed transactor. Now, the central part, counterparty can't have the world's most experienced traders sitting around all the time in its offices on the off chance that there'll be a crisis like that. So they'll have to come from the other institutions. And this is really an argument, uh, aside from the other argument, which is that if you have hedging transactions, you can't have one part of the hedge and one central counterparty and the other part of the hedge and another. So I think the argument for centralizing this is very important. I'd like to make one other point, though. I'm very troubled, John, by your argument about lack of harmonization uh, of the regulatory rules for capital or liquidity or whatever it is 
for two institutions. If we have two institutions that have an identical balance sheet, why would we ever want them to have different uh, requirements, either in their own risk management or their own um, or their regulatory rules for the same the same risk? My argument about uh, about uh, heterogeneity was across transactors that are of different time horizons, different degrees of leverage, and so on. That's where I think you get the, um, the two sides of a market under stress, not from giving uh, a different, uh, allowing different uh, capital charges for the same instrument uh, in the Royal Bank of Scotland from HSBC. So I'm a little trouble. Maybe I didn't understand your point. Let me, let me take, take that, that one on, and, and then I'm going to disagree with Charles. This almost never happens, by the way. The, the problem arises in, in the context I was talking about because risk weighting is used to determine capital, which I think is that is the fundamental problem. You really want financial institutions to react differently to shocks, and that means inevitably for the risk engines to be different and the risk models to be different. And that means accepting the fact that they will see risk differently in the same position. The problem, as you were talking about, is the capital charge. And I think the problem there really lies in the inappropriate way capital is determined. So, so I don't think we disagree as strongly as, as, we, as we did. Let me come back to the point where I was slightly disagreeing with Charles. And this is something that actually come up. This is not the first time we had a discussion. So, unlimited liability. And I'm, I sometimes just like to play the devil's advocate. As far as I can tell, there is no empirical evidence for the fact that unlimited liability financial institutions are less prone to failure. It's all assertion. And, and, and it might well be true, by the way. And if you go back to the 19th century, my favorite example is Overend and Gurney. In 1866, Overend and Gurney was the world's biggest bank. This was the world's richest financial family. That unlimited liability, that did not prevent them from jumping into junk bonds, yet leveraging up to become twice as rich as the richest banking family in the world. And of course, they failed. The, the, and of course, the 19th century is replete with examples of, 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 of unlimited liability firms failing. And somebody mentioned Dick Fold earlier. Dick Fold lost almost all of his fortune in the failure of Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers, was, Lehman Brothers was more than majority owned by its employees. So that was, Lehman Brothers was much closer to a, a limited liability, an un, unlimited liability company than, for example, Deutsche Bank or someone else. However, and, and CCPs, the, the Duffy Soap paper Charles mentioned is important, but my co-director in the center, Jean-Pierre Sigrand, did a very nice paper reaching a different conclusion. So I'm, I'm going to sort of mention slightly JP's conclusion on this. And he said, the problem by having a CCP, a central CCP, where everything goes through the CCP, is that it is highly pro-cyclical. That is, in a crisis, the CCP has to prevent its own failure. Because otherwise, the state has to bail it out. Therefore, it's more likely to start increasing margins. And that margin increase can endogenously by itself cause a crisis. So therefore, having a central CCP is also destabilizing 
No, however, I have a question from Malcolm here. So he's been challenging me. I'm going to give him a challenge. I'm very glad he got rid of the smoke-filled rooms in Basel. And by the way, the, the, I've never seen a smoke-filled room in Basel. I've been there a few times myself. Right. However, one thing, one thing I learned, I mean, of course, as you notice, I am somewhat controversial, and I don't even promise to agree with myself when I speak. However, <laughs> however and, I, and I often talk to regulators, and I, they never get upset. There's only one thing that I've found that upsets regulators is when I quote regulations. And the easiest way to make them upset is to quote Basel press releases. And, and, and this has happened to me a few times. You are in a, you're in a conference, right? You say, this is the intention of the regulators. I read from a Basel committee press release. And then some, impl- and then some regulator will respond and say, sorry, John, this is not how, what is happening. And I said, hang on a sec. This is what your boss's boss's boss told the world last week. No, that's not what's happening. The, that tells me, and that upsets them. So that tells me that there's a serious lack of transparency in the whole process. And what they've been told, and by reading was put out by the Basel Committee as a specific example, does not properly seem to represent the world. And do you have any concerns about this lack of transparency that this might reflect? I'll just say very quickly that... Um I think we are seeing some elements of regulatory fragmentation at this point. It's natural that the Basel Committee, which now is much larger in its country uh, composition than just the 11 countries of the G10, would have different shades of opinion within it. Um, and and I think that's what you're seeing reflected. So the. Um, the press releases, I agree with what you say in that sense. They do tend to be the lowest common denominator of the agreement that could be obtained in, the, in, in these committees. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of uh, difference of view and difference of motivation underneath. I think Lars wanted to make a point. Well, this is, I guess, the final final uh, comment. The heading of the panel debate was, are we heading towards a new financial crisis? And the answer from the panel was, yes, we are. I think we all agree on that. And I think one reason why we should look... Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, one reason, I think, why we should expect new crisis is due to the political economy of finance, of the financial system, there are so many interest groups who want to have cheap finance. And I would like to illustrate it not only by the financial sector, but also by homeowners and the role in the political process of home ownership. I can take the case of Sweden. We have tax-deductible interest rate costs. And, of course, this creates financial instability. The Swedish government also abolished the estate tax recently. And that, of course, also increases financial instability. So there's a popular demand through the political process for financial instability. And as long as the financial political process transforms these things in legislation, we should just expect future crisis. And perhaps we should be happy for it, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. With that, I think we'll have to close. Uh, Let us thank the, the two panelists who remain.